to the Locked On Boston Bruins podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your favorite team every single day, every other day at the moment, as we continue to work through this period of social distancing due to the COVID-19 virus. I'm your host, Ian McLaren. This is a daily Boston Bruins podcast where we discuss all things spoke to be, as well as take a look around the NHL. To keep up with the Locked On Boston Bruins podcast, you can follow the show on social media, specifically on Twitter, at LO underscore Boston Bruins. You can also email me with feedback at LockedOnBostonBruins at gmail.com. Personally, you can find me on Twitter at Ian C. McLaren. That's I-A-N-C-M-C-L-A-R-E-N. The podcast is available wherever you find your podcasts, whether it be Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Casts. Uh, Please also rate and review specifically Apple users. That would be very much appreciated if you're able to do that today. As I mentioned, we're currently mired in the COVID-19 crisis. It's day whatever of self-isolation, social distancing, quarantine. It's been officially one month since schools were closed up here in Ontario. Today would have been a day off anyways, as it's Easter Monday. Uh, but if you hear any noise in the background, it is my three small sons who are, I believe, currently building a fort on the landing of our stairs which is obviously super safe, and I'm sure there won't be any, uh, what should we say, ruckus anytime soon. Today on the podcast, uh, we're continuing our look back at some of the great Boston Bruins teams in franchise history. Last week, we took a look at the 2011 Boston Bruins, who of course beat the Vancouver Canucks in seven games to win the Stanley Cup. This week, we're taking it back to 1970, where the Boston Bruins beat the St. Louis Blues in the Stanley Cup Final, thanks to the infamous, infamous? No, not infamous, famous, Bobby Orr diving overtime goal to win the series, uh, which of course is also featured as a statue outside TD Garden. But first I wanted to, uh, yeah, address the death of Colby Cave, a very sad story in hockey over the last week or so for those of you who have been following Colby Cave's story he suffered a brain bleed due to a colloid cyst on April 6th uh, or early in the morning on April 7th underwent emergency surgery on the 7th and was put in a medically induced coma at Sunnybrook Hospital here in Toronto not here in Toronto but over in Toronto and unfortunately on Saturday, April 11th, he passed away as a result of uh, that brain bleed. A very sad story which has captured uh, the hockey world. So many uh, tributes coming in from all over uh, junior, the NHL ranks. Uh, Colby Cave was only 25 years old. He played 67 games at the NHL level. But based on the tributes pouring in, he obviously left quite an impact on all who came into contact with him uh, in the Western Hockey League, the American Hockey League, and at the NHL level. The Boston Bruins um, were, well actually let's go back to the beginning of his hockey story. He was originally drafted into the WHL by the Kootenay Ice. He was 
traded later to the Swift Current Broncos, where he made uh, his mark at the junior level. In his third season with the Broncos, he was named team captain. Uh, He averaged almost a point per game, finishing with 70 points in 72 games that season. Uh, However, he was not drafted by an NHL club. He went back to the Swift Current Broncos, where he um, recorded 75 points in 72 games, finished second in scoring on the Broncos that season, and was later signed to a three-year entry-level contract by the Boston Bruins in 2015. That 2014-15 Swift Current Broncos team was led in scoring by Jake DeBrusque. He had 42 goals, 39 assists for 81 points in 72 games. And he, of course, was drafted in the first round by the Boston Bruins. And uh, the on-ice relationship and off-ice relationship that he and DeBrusque had, I'm sure, certainly played a role in the Bruins also signing Cave to that entry-level contract uh, a year after he was first draft eligible and also a bit prior to DeBrusque being drafted. Now, Cave spent most of the first three years of his professional career with the Providence Bruins, uh, the baby Bruins, as we fondly refer to them around here. With the Providence Bruins, he... Um, you know, in his first season with the Bruins, his first full season, he recorded uh, 13 goals, 16 assists. He had 13 goals and 22 assists the next season, 11 goals, 22 assists in 2017-2018. It was during that season that he made his NHL debut, called up by the Bruins to play his first NHL game on December 21st, 2017. Uh, it was pretty cool that... Bruce Cassidy put him alongside former Broncos junior teammate DeBrusque in that NHL debut. It was a 2-1 shootout victory over the Winnipeg Jets when he was returned to Providence following that game. In 2018-2019, Colby Cave was having a very good season down in Providence, averaging more than a point per game with 6 goals and 12 assists uh, through 15 games. He scored his first NHL goal on December 17, 2018 in a 4-0 win over the Canadians in Montreal, which is incredibly special for a player in a Bruins uniform. He stayed with the Bruins in 20 for 20 games that season with uh, five assists to go along with that one goal, but he was placed on waivers for the purpose of reassignment to Providence but was claimed by the Edmonton Oilers, and he finished his uh, pro career bouncing back between the Oilers and the AHL's Bakersfield Condors. Um, So he was a member of the Oilers, uh, you know, at the time of this medical incident. But the majority of his pro career was spent in the Boston Bruins organization, and the Bruins uh, posted some statements on Saturday to remember Colby Cave. And here's a couple of those now. First from Bruins President Cam Neely. He said, on behalf of the entire Bruins organization, I want to extend my deepest sympathy and condolences to Colby's family. As an undrafted free agent from Saskatchewan, Colby chose the Bruins. And once 
he came to our organization, he seized the opportunity, and showed on and off the ice that he was a special hockey player and person. He was and will always be a Bruin, and he will be dearly missed by everyone who was lucky enough to know him. This from Don Sweeney. I was saddened to hear the news that Colby was unable to awaken from his coma and has passed. My heart aches for Emily, his wife, and the entire K family. Colby was a special person. He signed with the Bruins as an undrafted player, but his accomplishments in the WHL told a different story. His leadership qualities were beyond his years. When he arrived at development camp and in Providence for the 2015-16 season, he exhibited Patrice Bergeron-like characteristics on and off the ice. Driven and committed to be an NHL player, Colby was also uniquely unselfish with his own NHL dream, helping his teammates and his coaches game by game and day by day. Colby's red hair underneath that Peaky Blinders brimmed hat during the team's march into Notre Dame for the Winter Classic is a special memory, not only because the Bruins won that day, but because I know Colby cherished the opportunity to play in that game. The hockey world lost a great person who was beloved by his teammates and everyone that was fortunate enough to spend time with Colby Cave. Jake DeBrusque, uh, this one really got me, obviously, as his a teammate on multiple levels. He said, I'm so shocked and saddened to hear this horrible news. It's hard to put my feelings into words. I was lucky to play junior hockey with Colby. He was our captain and leader. It was an unforgettable moment when we again played together in the NHL for the Boston Bruins. He was an amazing person, player and friend. Sending my deepest condolences to Emily and the Cave family. Rest in peace, Colby. And finally, from Patrice Bergeron, he said, I'm very saddened by the news of Colby's passing this morning. He was a tremendous young man with passion, dedication, and respect for the game of hockey. Beyond that, he was genuine, respectful, and always full of life. I'm glad our paths crossed, and I had the chance to get to know him. He will be dearly missed by all. On behalf of myself, my wife Stephanie, and our three kids, we send our most sincere condolences to his wife Emily and his whole family. We are keeping you in our thoughts and sending you strength and love during this unimaginable time. You know, the passing of Colby Cave affected me. I personally won't forget uh, the fact that he made his debut alongside DeBrusque, which must have, been, must have been extremely special. And the fact that he scored his first NHL goal as a member of the Bruins in Montreal uh, is just amazing. Uh, very sad news, and my thoughts and prayers go out to the K family, to his wife Emily. Uh, just very tragic news, and uh, yeah, I was deeply saddened by this, and uh, just thankful for the memories that Colby gave us as Bruins fans and as hockey fans. And his kind of story is uh, a great one, you know, undrafted WHL player, uh, but a leader on his team. And someone whose character uh, just gave him that drive to succeed uh, and to become an NHL player, but also to be a, a, an even better person. And uh, yeah, we just remember Colby K fondly and send our love to his family. Now, as I mentioned, we're taking a look at the 1970 Boston Bruins. And since that was before my time, I thought I would share what Bobby Orr wrote about uh, that experience in his book, Orr, my story that came out a few years ago. So if you'll bear with me, I'll have a semi-dramatic reading from this book, 
with some commentary thrown in. So here we go. This begins on page 122. A four-game sweep of the Blackhawks landed us in the final. Our opponent was the St. Louis Blues. They were making their third straight appearance in the finals, so it was a veteran group of players with a lot of playoff experience under their belt. The Blues had emerged in a short time as the class of the expansion teams, and we knew this would not be an easy series. Hilarious that, side note, they were in the finals three years in a row and didn't win until 2019, but that's another story which is sad. You need to remember something here that is very important when it comes to sports and championship caliber teams. We had been through two very successful regular seasons in a row, and all of us in the room knew we were a pretty good team, but that meant nothing. As long as we thought that being good was enough to win, we weren't going to cut it. You don't win by being good. You win with hard work and sacrifice. Without that, skill is just potential. Oof. Deep, Bobby. Now, our first Stanley Cup was sitting there within our grasp, just four victories away. We won the first two games of the series on the road, and we took Game 3 back in Boston. That set up a very dramatic Game 4. What we had in front of us that day, as we prepared for the game that afternoon, was an opportunity to achieve something we had been dreaming of for years. Let me share how that game developed from where I was sitting on May 10, 1970. The Boston Garden was packed to the rafters and everyone had come to the rink anticipating the end of a long wait for the cup. The Garden was a fantastic old rink and the fans in Boston had stuck with us even when we were finishing last in the league. This kind of reminds me, side note, as uh, the 2011 team having gone through some lean years, being pretty good for a couple years, finally taking that next step. Back to Bobby. By the time we were deep in the playoffs, that crowd kept us going, so on a hot spring day in Game 4, with the cup waiting for us, the mood was nothing short of incredible. The last time a Bruins team had accomplished the task was back in 1940-41, so it had been almost 30 years since Boston had last won it all. Math checks out there. The drought had persisted long enough, at least in the eyes of the Bruins faithful. As for the players, we wanted it done right then and there. The chance to sweep on home ice was within our grasp. Of course, people who have played the game, especially at higher levels, will tell you the last game in a series is always the hardest to win. Cut to Game 7 last year. Refusing to lose the series can be as much of an inspiration as wanting to win it. And players hate being swept even more than they hate losing. It leaves a particularly nasty taste in your mouth. We had experienced that taste just a couple of seasons before, so we understood how it felt. They were a proud team with a great leader in Scotty Bowman, and we all knew that taking the Blues out that night was no foregone conclusion. We felt we were in for the best game of the series. Just as we'd expected, the Blues came out and gave us everything they had. We got on board first with Rick Smith, a defenseman not normally known as a goal scorer, giving us the lead right off the bat. But Red Berenson tied it up with under a minute to go in the first. As the second period began, Gary Sabarin, a Perry Sound native, by the way, also home to Bobby Orr, gave them a 2-1 lead fairly quickly. But Espo tied it again as the period was winding down. It stood 2-2 going into the third, and the already incredible tension was mounting. They weren't going to roll over for us. We barely had time to sit down on our bench to start the third, when, 19 seconds in, 
Larry Keenan gave St. Louis a 3-2 lead, and the place suddenly got a little bit quiet. It was fitting that around the 13-minute mark, the old veteran Johnny Busick, the first roomie I'd ever had with the Bruins, scored the goal that tied it up. Rick Smith had an assist on that goal, his second point of the night, and it just goes to show how different players at different times can step up and contribute. It was a seesaw battle to the end, but neither team could finish the job. It was off to overtime, which is the way every kid wants to win the cup. No one needed a speech in the dressing room to get motivated to go back out there. Not much was said. At least I never heard much. I suppose nothing really needed to be said. We all knew what was at stake. The deal now was just to go out, each man do his job, and get this over with. Sudden death. I hadn't scored a goal in the series up to that point. Jeez, Bobby, what's your problem? That fact didn't particularly register with me at the time, because in the grand scheme of things, it just didn't matter. I wasn't there to improve my stats. I was there to help the Bruins win. I couldn't have cared less who scored the final goal, so long as the player who was wearing so long as the player was wearing a black and gold uniform. Wow. Teamwork. Harry Sinden decided to start Derek Sanderson's line, consisting of Turk, Wayne Carlton, and Ed Westfall, with Don Ari and me on defense. Perhaps Harry's decision to go with Sanderson's line and keep the very potent line of Espo, Cashman, and Hodge on the bench might have surprised some people in the stands, or even on the bench. But it made sense to me. Derek and Eddie were both solid two-way players, and that was our best defensive line. I'm sure that Harry just wanted to ensure the Blues wouldn't get one early in the overtime period. He wanted to get that first shift out of the way. He knew there would be nerves. As play began to start the overtime, the puck found its way into the St. Louis end, and our forwards were on it in a hurry. We had some great pressure on them, and as the play along the left boards developed, Derek eventually picked up a loose puck as the Blues were starting to head out of the zone up their right side. Turk stepped towards the net and let loose a shot that missed the target, going around the boards towards the other corner and heading up in my direction. Remember, even though I was a left-hand shot, I had always played the right point, so I had to stop pucks along the board on the backhand. Very interesting. You see a lot these days of having that left-right combinations. Interesting that Bobby played on the right side as a left-hand shot. Instinctively, he writes, I pinched down. I really can't say why I held the zone, but for whatever reason, I gambled a bit. The St. Louis forward closest to me as the puck came around was number 18, Larry Keenan, who had scored earlier in the game. He got to the puck about the same time I did, and I'm sure Larry had visions of scoring his second of the game as he extended his stick and tried to poke it around me off the boards. If he had been able to sneak it by me, they would have had a 2-on-1 or 3-on-1 in the other direction, and I would have been caught. But I managed to get my stick on the puck, and immediately I slid it towards Derek. By that time, Turk had followed his shot in behind the net and was now standing just below the goal line near the post, a quick pass away. I did what came naturally. Once I chipped the puck in Derek's direction and went hard to the net, Derek fed it back to me immediately. Glenn Hall's legs opened up in the crease, and bingo, the puck was in the back of the net. I'd like to say I checked first and picked my spot on Glenn, but the truth is it was simply a bang-bang give-and-go play. 
I just tried to get a shot on net. And while I was focused on that, Blues defenseman Noel Picard got a stick on me to slow me down. But he tripped me an instant too late. He brought me down, but not before I'd spent that moment airborne. As soon as I fell back to the ice, Sanderson jumped on me and the celebration began. I was mobbed by my teammates who poured over the boards. Some of the Boston fans were right behind me. Then there I was, following Chief around the ice, with him hoisting the cup over his head. Growing up, lying in bed at night, that was something I had dreamed about. No words will ever do justice to the feeling of winning the Stanley Cup. So many things come together in that moment. There is, of course, the pure joy of getting somewhere you have wanted as long as you can remember. Something you have wanted, sorry. Many of those games of shinny on Georgian Bay featured a cup-winning overtime goal. To actually do what you have dreamed of a thousand times since you were a kid is a feeling like nothing else. But there's more to it than that. Part of the exhilaration is not just getting what you've wanted your whole life, but getting it after years of hard work and after the gut-wrenching challenge of a playoff run. It wouldn't have felt nearly the same having what we wanted just handed to us. We'd achieve what we wanted with the best hockey players in the world, tough, skilled athletes, trying to stop us at every turn. There wasn't a guy on that team, probably either team, who wasn't banged up after fighting, game after game, for every inch in the ice. When you win, all those bruises and stitches just make the thrill of accomplishment that much more powerful. Still, there was more to the feeling of victory than that. My dad was there at the garden that night, and my thoughts went to him right away. And it happened to be on Mother's Day. Someone had a huge banner saying, Happy Mother's Day, Mrs. Orr, behind the net. My thoughts were with her as well. When you win something as big as a Stanley Cup, you can't help but think about all the people who played a part in getting you there. It is a reminder that you really can't take all the credit. Pretty cool that Aura was able to win on Mother's Day. It kind of shows you how the NHL schedule is different, seeing as that is in mid-May, not mid-June. He goes on, but that doesn't make it less thrilling, just the opposite. It makes it all feel right. I have won a few trophies over the years, and I never really liked individual honors, because they seem to miss the point. No one guy can accept the praise for the stats he puts up, because it takes all kinds of unacknowledged help to get there. All the coaches in minor hockey and in Oshawa, or played for the Generals, the Ontario Hockey League team, all the friends and volunteers, teachers and billets, the neighbors who lent a hand at some point, and the teammates' parents who drove me to the rink. There's really no such thing as an individual accomplishment. A team victory means much, much more. I scored only one goal in that series. There's, there's no way anyone can say I won the series with that goal. I was just helping out at that point. A team gets very close over the course of a few campaigns like that, and I would say the Bruins team was especially close. As an example, I believe we may have been the first team to vote a full share of playoff bonus money to both our trainers. A huge part of the thrill of winning the cup is knowing that the guys you have fought alongside are also winning it. That's pretty amazing of War really to, you know, arguably the most famous goal in NHL history, the most iconic image him flying through the air and he's saying you know it wasn't me who won that series but it was all the team and even all the way down to the trainers he finishes by writing in a similar way it's a real joy to win it for the fans 
People talk about sports as though it is just entertainment, but it's more than that. Our fans cared about what happened. They had a stake in the outcome of that season in a way no one does when they go to a movie. We knew that the Bruins meant a lot to them, and that meant a lot to us. And that's especially uh, resonant right now as there's no hockey. We're kind of, again, going through this COVID-19 health crisis. We're relying on Netflix, books, movies to get through it. We have no idea when hockey is going to be played again. We don't know what the outcome of the 2019-20 season will be, if there will be one. We know the Bruins lost last year to the St. Louis Blues in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final. They were first place this year. And the fact that you know so many of us care so much about this team, about the players, what happens to them on and off the ice, we're reminded of that with the passing of Colby Cave. The Bruins mean a lot to us, and the fact that we may not get closure on the season is a real, uh, yeah, heartbreak, to be honest. And uh, thankful that we do have those memories. We have 2011. We do have those recent trips to the Stanley Cup Final. Uh, but again, um, don't know what's going to happen this season. And so we'll spend more time this week taking a look back at this 1970 team. For Wednesday's show, we'll have a special mailbag. So if you have any memories or questions about the 1970 St- Stanley Cup winning Boston Bruins, please do uh, send me a tweet at Ian C. McLaren at LO underscore Boston Bruins. Or please also... Uh, email at lockedonbostonbruins at gmail.com. Let's finish off today with some Bruins news and notes. First of all, big congratulations to Jeremy Swayman. The University of Maine Black Bears goaltender was announced as the winner of the Mike Richter Award, given annually to the best goaltender in NCAA Division I men's hockey. The 21-year-old went 18-11-5 for the Black Bears and led the NCAA in saves, 1,099, with a 939 save percentage, which ranked second in the nation. Pretty remarkable save percentage considering the amount of pucks that he faced. Um, the Alaska native made 30 saves in more or more in 25 games and five times stopped at least 40 shots. He was signed to a three-year entry-level contract by the Bruins back in March and was one of three Hobie Baker finalists as the best player in college hockey. The award went to Minnesota Duluth defenseman Scott Perunovich. Speaking of the Bruins, Don Sweeney had a Zoom call on Friday, Good Friday, and just addressed some of the issues related to COVID-19 and resumption of play at some point he said logistically the league and the players are going to work together on this we have to work together to find hopefully a result some sort of storyline here to resume the season in some fashion everybody knows it's going to take an extended training camp to get back up to speed for the health and well-being of the players we have to be healthy we have to have standards in place that we can uphold to make sure of the well-being of the players blah 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 who knows if and when hockey will be played, but it's clear that the NHL wants to get some sort of training camp, exhibition games, maybe even some regular season games before just jumping into the playoffs, which 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. Seems a bit of a waste of time. Let's just get to the Stanley Cup. Maybe they do need some exhibition games and a training camp, but regular season games at this point are pretty uh, redundant, lame. I don't know what you'd say. He also mentioned the Tory Krug situation. He said, I dearly hope that Tory hasn't played his last game this year or going forward for the Bruins. He's been part of any success we've had as an organization, a special player, both on and off the ice, and he means a lot to the locker room. In a cap world, we have to try to fit the pieces together. We've had good discussions with Tory's group, haven't found a landing spot. Every negotiation has its own timeline, and the cap uncertainty certainly plays a part in that at the moment. Speaking of Krug, Matt Larkin of the Hockey News, he listed five potential destinations for Tory Krug, uh, who, of course, is set to become a unrestricted free agent in the offseason, if whenever that takes place. His top five list will start at number five. He says the Florida Panthers. I don't see that happening. The Montreal Canadiens, super gross. The Vegas Golden Knights, they always have some money to spend, it seems. Might be a good fit for him. I don't know if he'd be willing to make that move, although they do have a pretty loaded team. Number two is the Detroit Red Wings, who I've said all along it would be the most logical landing spot. A young team rebuilding, but Michigan is where he's from, and they have plenty of money and also some decent young talent, which Likely, it will include Alex Lafreniere. And of course, number one will be the Boston Bruins. Never count out the existing team. Larkin writes, Krug wants to stay, which matters. Um, and Sweeney, as we all know, seems to have a way of getting players to sign for less than what they might get on the open market. And uh, just that family dynamic. I don't know how much the COVID-19 situation is playing into things. Maybe guys want to just... Stay where they're comfortable, you know, realizing hockey careers are short, life is short, might as well stay where things are working. So may, that might play into it. But um, again, we still have to get through whatever is left of the 2019-20 season, hopefully some playoffs, and then we can get to the Tory Krug situation and a resolution to that that favors the Bruins. Anyways, that's it for today's edition of the Locked On Boston Bruins podcast. We'll be back with a couple more shows this week, still focusing on the 1970 Bruins, some news and notes from around the NHL, any other other further developments in uh, yeah, this current season and Boston Bruins related. I read from Orr today. Be sure to pick that up. It's a pretty good book. Right, Will? All right. Doesn't want to say anything. You want to say goodbye? Goodbye. Uh, do you want to say take care? Take care. Do you want to say hasta la vista? Hasta la vista. Do you want to say something funny? <laughs> Hope you all had a great Easter. Hope you're all taking care of yourselves and each other. And thanks again for listening. Tell a Boston Bruins fan about the Locked On Boston Bruins podcast today. Spread the word. I also appeared on the Locked On NHL show today, talking about my love for Patrice Bergeron and his chances of winning the Selkie Trophy again this year. So yeah, um, 
Other recommendations to stay busy, we've been watching McMillions, which is a very good documentary on HBO lately. Uh, Community, I'm almost done season one. And be checking out Homeland, Westworld, latest episodes of that. Better Call Saul, last week's episode was phenomenal. Very much a Breaking Bad kind of episode. And I'm interested to see how that resolves tonight. So yeah, with that all said, thanks so much again for listening. Take care of yourselves, and we will catch you again later. Peace. Peace.